From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. 34 technology experts make up the 2021 class of Presidential Innovation Fellows. The General Services Administration says 12 of the 26 agency projects the fellows will work on involve artificial intelligence. The Department of Veterans Affairs has the most fellows joining an agency with four. The four reporting functions of the old Federal Procurement Data Systems site are now part of beta.sam.gov. The General Services Administration says the transition Saturday went smoothly. NextGov reports the rest of FPDS functionality scheduled to move to beta.sam.gov soon, but there's no timetable yet. The Social Security Administration will get a new Chief Information Officer. Rajiv Mather says he's moving to the SSA Commissioner's Office through the end of 2020. NextGov reports the Deputy CIO, Sean Brune, will take over as CIO. The Senate's Pandemic Federal Telework Act would put federal employees on maximum telework status until the Department of Health and Human Services declares the public health emergency from the pandemic is over. Whether that happens or not, agencies are rethinking what their footprints look like. Angela Stiles is partner at Aiken Gump. She's a member of the Public Buildings Reform Board. Angela, welcome back. Thanks for coming on the program again. There's a lot going on in the this look of the and the feel of the real estate footprint because of the pandemic. What should agencies be thinking about now? What do you think as an enterprise the federal government should be thinking about now? Well, you know, speaking as just one board member here, in many ways, this is an opportunity to look very differently at federal real estate. And what I think we've found most interesting is that the real estate that we identified in our high value round a lot of times isn't used as office buildings, right? What we're selling will be um, housing. It can be housing for homeless. It can be multi-use facilities as opposed to just office buildings. And so I think the government needs to alter the way that it looks at this completely. This isn't about disposing, you know, it's all called property disposal. It's not about disposing a property. It's determining what's the best value for the federal government and what the best value for the local communities and what works for our federal workforce as well. That tracks with what um, private sector organizations are thinking about too. That tracks with what companies that own big portfolios of shopping malls that are not really popular anymore, highly utilized. They're thinking about using spaces like that for warehouses, all different kinds of uses for all different kinds of properties. How does one, how should the government in, in particular, but how does one in general think about what fits best in a particular community for a particular piece of property? Well, it's working with the local communities. It's talking to the members of Congress. It's talking to the local communities. And I will tell you that our government is not, our federal government is just not good at that. What we have discovered as an independent board is that the government does not really understand the private sector. They're a little hard, they're a little scared of working with local governments. They're scared of taking risks. And we're not gonna get anywhere with looking at this differently until federal employees feel comfortable that this is their job um, and taking some risks. Like you see like the Department of Defense, the Defense Innovation Unit, Army Futures understand that they need to take risks in order to act more like the private sector to do the best job possible for our warfighters. 
we need to take the same approach in the civilian agencies. What, what can we do best for our local communities and our federal workers? So the military parallel then, let me pull on that for a moment. I wonder if it makes sense to go back and look at the base realignment and closure efforts where the Defense Department did a fair amount of that. They did uh, work with the local jurisdictions about what would make the most sense for a particular piece of property that the Defense Department was vacating. Are there lessons to be learned there, Angela? There are so many lessons to be learned from that. And the problem is, is that our, our board doesn't have, we just make recommendations on the properties and what should be done with them, but it's actually GSA and their disposal, back to the word disposal again, folks that are in charge of kind of pushing it forward from there. And those are the people that really have to take a different approach to this and look at how it was done and be willing to think outside the box and use private sector practices and understand just like you said, what the private sector is doing now with COVID in terms of how they assess real estate and how it's used. So separate your board role from just your government experience. How much influence should what the inside of the building looks like, the workspace that the employees come back to, influence the overall footprint of what the government decides it needs to have five years from now, 10 years from now? Because on the one hand, I imagine Nobody's going to really probably be comfortable coming back to an open office environment. On the other hand, square footage might be important if we decide we need to have a certain amount of space between employees. That's right. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, we have so much square footage. And there's some excellent people at GSA and leasing as well that have really learned private sector leasing practices. And so between the combination of what we have in terms of our real estate and what we're able to lease, uh, I think you can really come up with excellent solutions. You know, maybe even lead beyond what the private sector does um, in terms of making sure that you have a safe, comfortable working environment when people do have to physically be there. Should agencies start to think about what the inside of the space looks like, Angela, or is that premature based on not knowing exactly what people will want and what, um, from a safety perspective, will be necessary? I think they have to look. I don't, I'm not sure that this is ever going away. I think we've obviously learned a lot about, you know, uh, the transmission of diseases. And I, I think for the long term, it'll be something else, right? And so we need to have work environments where we're comfortable. So it's time to start thinking now. We just have a couple of minutes left. I want to shift gears. You're tracking some issues regarding small businesses that are trying to do business with the government. What's on your radar screen there right now, Angela? Well, I think it's really interesting. We had the Kingdomware Supreme Court decision in 2016, and a lot of those Department of Veterans Affairs contracts are now, you know, coming up for resolicitation. And I am a little bit troubled by how some companies have repurposed themselves as service-disabled, veteran-owned small businesses in order to be able to qualify for this. Well, I think they're meeting the legal requirements. I'm really concerned that they're not meeting the policy requirements and we're not serving our service-disabled uh, veterans through this program in the way that we really intended to. We have a little bit less than a minute left, Angela. For years and years and years, companies have met the letter of the law and not necessarily the spirit of the law regarding set-asides. Is what you're seeing now different than that? No, I just, from my perspective, I think it's worse because we're talking about service-disabled veterans that are kind of being hired as service-disabled rent-a-veterans, if you will, to run these companies as opposed to being true entrepreneurs that you know benefit from the profits of the company and 
you really, it's probably not different, but I think worse in some ways because it's service-disabled veterans and we need to do our best for them. 20 seconds. Who can do something about that and what should they do, Angela? The Department of Veterans Affairs. I mean, I, I think they need to take a hard look um, at the program and the policies and work with Congress on making sure that we get this right for them. Angela Stiles, thanks very much. Great to have you back. Thank you. Up next, the risk in your thrift savings plan account. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the top threats to your financial future and how the TSP is dealing with them. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Participation in the thrift savings plans at a new high of 93.5%. CARES Act withdrawals are down from August 2. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, welcome back. It's great to see you. Um, the participation rate, is that primarily because of auto enrollment and the transition to uh, blended retirement at the Defense Department? Um, the uniform services is yes, because they are just trending up. They're now at the 71.8%. The first participation rate is at 93.5%. And both of those, as you mentioned, is auto enrollment and people not opting out, which is exactly what we want them to do or and not the, do. The trend line sounds good too on hardship withdrawals because of the, through the CARES Act. That's headed in a good direction too, it sounds like. Well, so CARES Act loans closed on September 22nd, and uh, roughly 17,000 people took out CARES Act loans, totaling about $406 million. Um, CARES Act withdrawals are still available through December, and about, so far, 84,000 people have taken those for a total of $1.9 billion. And we're hypothesizing, no, no facts, but hypothesizing that hardship withdrawals have declined because people are using or did use the CARES Act loans and uh, withdrawals. A number of issues at the board meeting this month that I want to ask you about. The first is an enterprise risk management update. I looked through the slides uh, that uh, the present that were shown at the meeting. What's the the gist of what uh, participants should know about the the risks that you perceive that the TSP perceives and how you're going about mitigating them? So first of all, I think what participants should know is that we're being very mindful and very thoughtful about this. Every year we do a risk assessment to see if new risks have popped up. We identify the risks that we're going to work on, that we work on the high and the medium highs obviously don't really, uh, we're mindful of or aware of the lows, but not our highest priority. Um, and then we work on them with a risk treatment plan through the through the year and reassess at the end of the year to see if the risk treatment plan got us where we wanted to be. And our top our our high risks in 2020 were information security. I don't think a surprise to anybody. Um, insider threat and uh, disaster recovery, business continuity. Uh, I think. I think COVID has given us a real life disaster recovery and we've done pretty well. Uh, but all three of those risks based on the risk treatment plan that we did will will decline to medium high at the end of the year, assuming we finish out the next couple months where we think we're going to. Uh, and then the cycle will start again. 
I don't want to scare people. The risks that you and your colleagues at TSP are talking about are not imminent. They're on the radar screen to prevent them from becoming imminent is the Precisely. read that I got as I, as I looked at these slides. Exactly right. It's not that we think our information security is insecure. It's that as every organization in the world, right, hackers can hack and we want to be mindful of that. We want to take all due precautions. Um, we want to see what the latest uh, trends are in terms of bad guy actions. And we want to make sure that we are countering those and we're ahead of those. Um, some quarterly reports that the board members heard about. Um, if you can just give me a thumbnail of what each one of these means, Kim. Investment policy, budget review, and audit status. So um, every every month we hear from our chief investment officer as how the, the funds did, how they tracked against the benchmarks. And that's what that report is. And I think it's no surprise that our our funds track very closely to the benchmark. That's what we aim to do. That's what we asked our fund manager to do. Um, the uh, budget review was from our chief financial officer telling the board how we did in terms of spending uh, against our FY19 budget. Not right, no, FY20, sorry, FY20 budget. Um, and we executed 95% of that budget. And then on the audit reports, it's or audit status, it's exactly what it sounds like. We track um, the audit findings we have, the audit closures we've made, and our projected plans for closing future audits. How simple is that investment policy review? I mean, tracking the indexes that the each fund is supposed to track strikes me as a pretty cut and dried effort, but it might not actually be, Kim. Um, it's not in the in the C fund, the S and P, which tracks the S and P five hundred. Our fund manager uh, owns every single one of those stocks. So in that one, not that I could do it, but fund professionals can. They track the uh, C fund pretty easily. For the other ones, um, this, the S fund is a good example. There are a lot of small. That's the small cap. Um, there are a lot of small stocks that they, the fund manager can't or doesn't want to buy because they're so rare, they could be overly expensive. And so they have their own proprietary um, formula that allows them to pick stocks that will mimic the stocks they don't own. And so that, and that is true of the F fund and the I fund as well. So that takes substantially more work and substantially more expertise to be able to track that um, index and hit it every month. I'm in the same boat as you. I couldn't do it if I had to. So that's why we have folks like them that you can hire to get them to do it for you. Kim Weaver, thanks very much as always. Thanks, Francis. Up next, turbocharging cloud computing security. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new technology that could cut the calendar from weeks to seconds. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The National Institute of Standards and Technology will use automation to streamline the federal risk authorization management program certification process. 
Using open security controls assessment language could shorten the assessment process by weeks. Nick Sinai, senior advisor at Insight Partners, former deputy chief technology officer of the United States. Nick, welcome back. It's good to see you. The, the uh, story that Jason Miller has up on Federal News Network about this says, through the development of a common machine-readable language, I mentioned uh, open security controls assessment language, uh, NIST is bringing automation to the program. Is this the first one of these, or is this just a different iteration of this type of uh, common open language? Hey, Francis, great to see you again. So NIST is, is working on the standard. They've been working on it with industry for the last few years and it appears that they're uh, about to go to version one of the standard. And just, just backing up to give your, your viewers a little bit of context, the whole idea here is uh, how do we automate FedRAMP? Uh, how do we make it easier for the assessors, the auditors, the FedRAMP program office, and the agency officials to uh, um, review packages, to organize their information, uh, and to bring machine learning even uh, to the process. And so this is essentially a way to get, get from the uh, uh, the Word documents and the Excel spreadsheets and the thousand-page static documents and start to represent these these artifacts as as machine-readable data that you can transmit uh, to each other. And the key phrase there, the two words that are the most important is machine-readable, right? Because the, when you apply automation to these, this is what's going to speed companies through this process uh, a, a lot more rapidly than they're able to now, right? Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to create a thousand page static document. So they're called these SSPs, these security plans. And those are, are, are static, several thousand page documents, right? And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because they're getting out of date uh, as soon as you've written them. But if, you, if we can start to represent the vulnerability scans, the penetration testing, the, all the documentation, which is uh, a lot of what FedRAMP is, 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 is documentation. If we can represent that in standard machine-readable ways, then we can, uh, essentially the software that the assessors and that the auditors and that the BRC tools, they can all build OSCAL into their software product and make it easier for the emerging software vendors to uh, get through the FedRAMP process. Will this look differently or work differently for the vendors than the process does now, Nick? I, I really hope so, and, and it's not that the uh, that the young software companies, like the kind of companies that Insight invests in, it's not like they're going to have to implement OSCAL. This is really for the companies, the consulting companies, and the, the auditors, and, 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 and the GRC tools. They're the ones that are going to be using um, OSCAL. And so that's, that's what's great here is uh, a, an emerging software vendor just, just wants to sell to the federal government, right? And they, they, they want to do it securely, but they, they also don't want to get, uh, they don't want to spend all the money and the time to go through FedRAMP. And, and this is one piece of the puzzle of how do we streamline, how do we automate, how do we bring currency concurrency. And certainly a, a, a standard like this that the entire industry can rally around and build into their tools is a way to bring some automation to the process. Once this exists, once this version 1.0 is out and we know that it's doing what it's intended, how can this apply in other places? Where are other places across certification processes or whatever um, that this concept could work? Well, I think it could help with reciprocity. Uh, we have some loose reciprocity between the FedRAMP and some of the, the DOD cloud uh, uh, certification processes, but I think we could, we could uh, improve and tighten some of that. Uh, this could make it easier for, for reciprocity from, from one agency to another. 
Um, and, and I think it also help, helps the uh, essentially managed security service uh, for, for vendors who want to provide that to uh, emerging software vendors. So let me just explain that for a second. What I'm talking about is instead of, instead of uh, a software vendor having to do uh, every last documentation, imagine essentially uh, um, this, this kind of thing provided as a service, uh, which includes the security tools, the, the documentation, and the continuous monitoring. And that just makes it easier, uh, especially when you're deploying on a, a cloud provider so that you're not responsible for, for all the documentation in, in perpetuity. We have a little bit more than a minute left, Nick. Any risks that either the FedRAM team, the NIST team, the vendors, uh, anybody should be paying attention to through this process? Well, I think that we still need to properly resource the FedRAMP office, and so there's a, I think there's a macro level risk. It's not a risk about the standard, but we, we absolutely need to give the FedRAMP offices uh, the kind of resources that they need, and that's true of the of the DISA process as well. I mean, we're we're essentially uh, have a single threaded under resource and a chicken and egg kind of uh, challenge with FedRAMP, and and so we have to figure out ways how to bring automation, but also additional resources if we're really going to get the next generation uh, vendors the kind of certification so that the federal government can use uh, these great products. A quick final thought, Nick. What would you watch as this process develops? I think I'll, I'm going to watch to see if the standard will be built into uh, the tooling, into the uh, assessors and the auditors. Um, and, and ultimately, I hope that software vendors uh, provide this kind of capability into the, the tools that the actual uh, authorizing officials and federal program office use. Let's, let's bring automation and software to, to them as well so that they can start to speed up the process. Nick Sinai, thanks very much for coming back. Great to talk to you again. Thanks, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and tune in every day. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.